0: Well, we are deep into the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. Matthew 23, that's where we'll be taking a look this morning. And it's interesting, you know, even though we know the outcome, I still feel the tension. It's like going to see a movie that you've seen before. You know, we know Bambi's mother dies. But you're still holding out hope. You know. We know Indiana Jones is going to get through and be alive. But you still wonder at moments, even though you've seen it. We know, we know Jesus' resurrection is as imminent as the crucifixion as we go through this study. We know He lives. And yet we get to this place and I can't help but feeling a little bit of concern as the days in that final week drop off behind Jesus and the cross looms ever larger before Him I found myself wanting to move quickly get to the cross and then get on to the resurrection and on the other side I found myself wanting to stay longer in the Galilee I don't know if you shared that experience but as we studied and, and I realized now He's heading south to Jerusalem I, I thought oh man that went by too fast I want more time walking in the green grass in my bare feet listening to Jesus teach I just want to stay there for a while But Jesus didn't come to walk in the green grass and bare feet. He didn't come just to hang out. He didn't come for any other purpose than to die as the suffering servant that we might live. And so He went to Jerusalem, and so the days went by one after another very quickly. And what we come to this morning in Matthew 23, the very end of the chapter, is the last public address that Jesus made on earth. Last public address. He'll do more teaching with his apostles, chapters 24 and 25. But chapter 23 is the last time he will speak to the crowds. How does it end? Verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling behold your house is being left to you desolate for I say to you from now on you will not see me until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and Jesus we pause to look at this one more time this morning I don't know Lord because I'm not quite ready to take the next step forward or because you have something else right here I, I, I suspect it's the latter But Father, I pray you would open our hearts and our minds to your intentions today and that your Holy Spirit would speak very clearly to every one of us, youngest to oldest, those who have walked with you for a long time, those who have just begun to walk with you, and possibly, Lord, those who aren't sure, who haven't begun that step of faith with you. I pray, Spirit, speak to each one of us. And as you do so wonderfully, meet us where we are. And say what needs to be said and give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And Jesus made it clear And when He came, He came to His own people first. In real estate terminology, He offered them the first right of refusal. They had first opportunity to choose or to reject, to accept or to say, No, we'll have none of this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 tells us, Jesus sent out the twelve after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, And do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't go to the Gentiles. You go to Israel. Matthew 15, verse 24. To the Canaanite woman, Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the people who had the first right of refusal did just that, as you know. They refused. And so we come to Matthew 23. Now we went through this on Wednesday night, the whole chapter. It is the last public address of Jesus. And in this address, his final words in the community forum, Jesus railed on the religious elite. Jesus took apart the scribes and the Pharisees in impassioned language. Strongest language Jesus uses. Stronger than any other time in his ministry. He really goes after these guys. And I don't know that if I was there, I would have done that. Coming down to the end, I might have made a broader appeal. You know, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. But Jesus, Jesus takes them apart word by word. It's a heart-rending statement seen in eight different woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And Jesus calls out their stiff-necked Rebellion. And then Jesus turns to the city of Jerusalem, speaking to the city, generically, itself, with the final word. A word in some ways not unlike that of the psalmist who sat by the waters of Babylon in captivity and cried out, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, Psalm 137. There's something absolutely unique about the city, Jerusalem. We've talked about Jerusalem many times. In fact, so many times when I came to these verses, I thought I'd wrap things up on Wednesday night. We finished them, we looked at them, we talked about them. And I'm ready to go on to the prophetic in Matthew 24 and 25. Some awesome things there. But the Lord said, Patience. Patience. I want you to talk one more time about Jerusalem. Something amazing about this city, especially to the place it holds in the Jewish heart, and should hold, I believe, in the Christian heart. Why? Why is Jerusalem such a significant location in the landscape of earth? Why that city? Why that country? Well, if we go back 40 centuries ago, God made a promise to a man named Abram, He said in Genesis 12, verse 2, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of earth will be blessed. And then God did something interesting. He painted a prophetic picture for us. I'm not talking about where He had Abraham you know, lay out an offering, and he went through that offering as Abraham slept and and confirmed that covenant. I'm talking about a little bit later on. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, where he called Abraham to take his only son. And the wording is very clear. Now, Abraham had already had Ishmael. But God did not recognize that. God did not recognize the firstborn of Abram because it was something made in the flesh of carnality As Abram, not trusting God, slept with his handmaid, Hagar. That was not God's plan. So God gave Abraham and Sarah, in their old age, He gave them Isaac. And God calls him, your son, your only son. He says in Genesis 22, verse 2, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now those of you who know the story, you know that God did not allow Abraham to follow through. He raised the knife and was stopped. Okay, far enough. But the picture at that point was burned into the memory, the understanding, the history of the world. A father who would sacrifice a son. And in that we see the picture of our father who sacrificed his son. Only he didn't stay his hand. He went through with the whole deal. By the way... uh, That's the first time the word love is used in the Bible. Genesis 22, verse 2. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. And when we talk about things in Scripture, we look back to the first time a specific word is used, especially a word as important as love, and we get something of the depth of the meaning of the word. The love of a father for a child. The love of our father for his children is, I think, implicit in that verse. So the Jewish heart looks to Israel because it was there on Mount Moriah where Abraham attempted to almost sacrifice Isaac on the same mountain and some believe possibly in the very same place that God sacrificed Jesus on the cross. Mount Moriah being in the center there of Jerusalem. 30 centuries ago, the Lord expressed His own feelings for Jerusalem, saying in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 5, Since the day I brought my people from the land of Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man for a leader over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. God set His name there in Jerusalem. Some of you who have studied these things or heard about these things may recall that if you were to fly over Jerusalem, there are three valleys there. And those three valleys come together in a unique shape. The shape is very similar to that of the Jewish letter Shem. Well, the letter Shem is the letter the Jewish people will use to signify God because Shem signifies Shaddai as in El Shaddai the city in which I have set my name. Psalm 132, verse 13, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His, inhabitation, his habitation. Psalm 87, verse 2, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Jeremiah three seventeen. They will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil hearts Speaking of a day that has yet to come, and we have yet to see all the nations stream into Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. But it will happen. Zechariah chapter two verse eight says, He who touches Jerusalem touches the apple of his eye. That most guarded place. There's a hint here as to why the Lord made the promise 4,000 years ago. He made the promise and then He claimed the property 3,000 years ago. But something else happened here 20 centuries ago. And that is the person, Jesus Christ, was crucified there in Jerusalem. Raised to life again. He secured the property and fulfilled the prophetic promise. But the story doesn't end there. In fact, that's just the beginning for you and for me. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2. God said, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it that's going to happen before all the nations are gathered to Jerusalem all the nations are going to be gathered against it now listen when Zechariah made that claim that statement that prophecy it would have been ridiculous on the geopolitical scene I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of reeling you've got to be kidding Nineveh would be a better choice in the great Assyria or go to the heart of Babylon there's a great city City of Nebuchadnezzar the king. Those were the great cities in Israel's heyday. Or after Israel's heyday. That time was long past by the time Zechariah made these statements. The days of the dynasty of King David and the dynasty of his son Solomon, which was even greater in terms of its reach, those days were gone. Israel was becoming fast a vassal state. It was broken apart, divided between Israel and Judah. And in fact, when Zechariah prophesied, Israel was gone. There was nothing but little Judah left. And little Jerusalem in the middle of that. And I'm going to make this a cup which causes reeling. What? made no sense when the words were spoken. But the fact that Israel remains today in our lifetime the very center of the world with Jerusalem at its heart and the Temple Mount at the heart of that, that should astound us. The fact that this city is even in the news should blow our minds. We get kind of used to it. You know, as Christians, especially if you're in the Word, you're hearing the word Jerusalem a lot. So, uh, Jerusalem, yeah. Think about this, gang. It's in the news every single day. This little city in this tiny country in the Middle East. Why is it so important? Because it declares to us the pinpoint accuracy of God's Word. Jerusalem is a cup of reeling. Everyone who has attempted to lift it has been severely injured. This Tuesday, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is heading to Israel, and we'll see how she does. <laughs> Listen, it's no coincidence that Jesus' final remarks to the people, I'm talking to the crowds in general, the final statement he makes has to do with, then, Jerusalem. And before getting to his great prophecies of Jerusalem then and Jerusalem now and Jerusalem yet to come, in the next couple of chapters, we're going to look at this a little more. Think about why is it that he's ending here? Why is he saying these things? And I believe this is foundational to understanding Jesus' private teaching to the apostles, which will begin in chapter 24. Let's look back again. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. We see in Jerusalem, number one, if you're taking notes, an historic rebellion. An historic rebellion. As we saw before, Jesus has just finished delivering eight woes to the Pharisees, to the scribes. The last of which begins in verse 29. Listen to these words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Have you ever done that, by the way? Man, if I had lived in the days of the Red Sea, I would be a strong believer. You know, if I had walked through the wilderness, my heart would not have failed at Kadesh Barnea. I would have gone storming into the promised land knowing that God was with me. Had I been there, it would have been different. No, it wouldn't. If I had been in the garden, I would have said, Eve, sorry, hun, i I'm not eating the apple. I'm not going there. Have a nice life. You know, I would have had the the strength, the fortitude, to see it through. Right? Jesus says, "You guys come along and you adorn the the tombs, the the monuments of the of these guys who have died." But you know what? It was your fathers who killed them, and now you're playing the other side. Now go on, he says. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Is he saying it's their fault? They're getting the same blame blame that their fathers are getting? No, as I said Wednesday night, they're just getting ready to take up the family business. He is implying you are about to do exactly what the fathers did. You act so righteous and so holy... As you come to these tombs of the prophets and say, oh yes, the tomb of, of Zechariah. Well, what happened with Zechariah? <laughs> Jesus says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of you, some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. The son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. This was a tomb that would have been adorned, honored. And yet their fathers murdered that prophet and they're about to do the same exact thing. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, all these things will come upon you in this generation. That phrase, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Well, of the guilt of was added in. And I think it misdirects what Jesus was saying. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. What does that mean? It means get her done. (laughs) It means do what you have already determined in your heart to do. Go do it. At the moment Jesus spoke these words, these scribes, these Pharisees were looking at Him with absolute murderous intent. All they needed was opportunity. The motive was there. The anger. The passion. The will was there to kill this Jesus. Go for it, Jesus says. And unlike unlike us, he doesn't say go for it, take your best shot. He says go for it, it needs to be done. Interesting verse in Revelation chapter 22, verse 11 says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. What does that mean? It means make your choice. Do what is in your heart to do. If it is in your heart to follow Jesus and love him with your life, man, do it with all you are. But if it's in your heart to rebel, you go ahead and do that. Don't play at both sides, because God doesn't accept playing at both sides. Do what is in your heart to do. Jesus then begins with Abel, the first martyr, comes all the way down to Zechariah, the last of the prophets martyred, at least prior to John the Baptist. The story is told in 2 Chronicles 24.20 when the Spirit of the Lord came on Zechariah And we're told he stood above the people and he cried out these words, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord, there in the temple. Unbelievable. And the history of Jerusalem is filled with bloodshed and rebellion and conspiracy. And I'm talking about in Israel, among the Jewish people, not even mentioning all the other nations who have come and gone and tried to take that city. We studied through 1st and 2nd Kings. We're going to go back after this and go study 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You see this time and time again. You're holding out hope for these kings. doesn't matter. <laughs> Hold out all the hope you want. There's still bloodshed and violence and conspiracy and rebellion throughout. Well, I was one of the kings... That would t- You know what? Uh Uh-uh. Because at the heart of all things, at the heart of all people, there is rebellion. An historic rebellion in the city of Jerusalem. And the reason the blood guilt of all the generations would be on their heads is because they are about to rebel in the same way that their fathers rebelled. In fact, a little further, just before the crucifixion, they will cry out, a phrase that was taken out of the movie The Passion, because it was too inflammatory, but it was what was said. Matthew 27, verse 25, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Fill up then a measure of your fathers. So Jesus says history is about to repeat itself. All these things are going to come upon this generation, and all those things did. They did exactly what He said they were going to do. About 40 years after Jesus leaves Jerusalem was left desolate again. He said, How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Second thing to note, horrific, horrific desolations. Historical rebellion leading to horrific desolation. That is the cycle of history in this city, Jerusalem. Rebellion and desolation. Rebellion and desolation. Go back now approximately 530 years to Daniel chapter 9. 530 years before Jesus spoke of these desolations that would come. And watch what happens here. I haven't talked about Daniel chapter 9 for a while. In verse 1, it tells us in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was to be revealed as to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah... The prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. Namely, 70 years. I love Daniel. Next to Jesus, Daniel is my man. I mean, he is the one in Scripture that I would want to most be like. Man of integrity. Man of of sound judgment, of wisdom. Man who listens to God. And a man of the Word. Daniel is in the Word. He is reading and believing the scroll of Isaiah. He's there in Babylon in captivity, and he's in his daily Bible study. And as he's reading over, pouring over the scroll of Isaiah, he reads this verse, Jeremiah sorry, Jeremiah is the scroll. He reads Jeremiah twenty five, verse eleven. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Daniel's reading, he stops. It says seventy years. He reads a little bit further on. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I'll visit you, and I'll fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Daniel's reading, and there it is again. After seven years, 70 years, I'm going to visit you, and I'm going to take you home. And it hits Daniel. It has been 70 years. We've been in Babylon 70 years and this is what Jeremiah said would happen. And this is what Jeremiah says is about to happen. He realizes the Babylonian captivity of the Jews has run its course. The desolation of Jerusalem is all but over and so Daniel begins to pray. Note that pattern. Daniel begins to pray. He's studying the Word. Then he begins praying to God and then he begins hearing from God. Studying the Word of God. Drawn into prayer to God. Drawn into hearing from God. But in Daniel's prayer, he hears from God about an entirely different matter than that for which he's praying. He starts praying repentance. He starts opening up his heart for all of his people and associates himself completely with it, praying for the sins of himself and his people and their sins, though Daniel was a very righteous man. I point that out just to say when you're feeling desolate to the point you don't know even what or how to pray, go to the Word. Because so often when you go to the Word and you begin to meditate over the Word, you get led into a place of prayer. And when you're led into that place of prayer, you begin to hear and understand. Well, as a result of Daniel's prayer, we don't have time to do the whole chapter. I wish we did. We'll do it at a later time. But at the result of his prayer, the angel Gabriel is sent to him, He's sent so fast that he's standing there tapping his feet while Daniel is finishing up. I mean, he's just there. Verse 24. Gabriel begins to express and explain something the Lord has for Daniel to tell his people, not about the desolation now past, but about the future desolations of Israel and Jerusalem. Verse 24. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. And so you are to know and to decree that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, you need to understand, when you come to this passage, one of the most, I'm going to say the most critical passage in the Old Testament, as far as understanding God's prophetic timeline, His plan, you need to understand what this word weeks means. Some of you know this. It is the Hebrew word Shabuim, Shabuim in the plural, or Shabuah, and it literally is a unit of seven. It's a heptad. That's our word in mathematical language in English. A heptad. An easier word would be a dozen. We use a dozen when we're talking about twelve. We know we're talking about twelve. Shabuah. If a Greek, uh, a Hebrew person says shabuah, it was a unit of seven. I need, uh, I need a shabuah of cokes. You know. I need a shabuah of donuts. Plus a few. You know. It's, it's how they they expressed in their language a unit of seven. So the word is not weeks, it's sevens. So when he says seventy sevens have been decreed for your people, and further down there's going to be seven weeks and then sixty two weeks, he's talking about units of seven, and in this case, seven years in each unit. Seven year time periods. The the totality of this is four hundred and ninety years. Well, how do we know that? History. If you had read Daniel at the time, you wouldn't have understood this. In fact, that's why the Lord says at the end of Daniel, steal up this proper prophecy. It's not going to be understandable right now. It's going to make sense later. When you can look back, you can overlay this pro- prophecy on history, and all of a sudden, oh, Shabuah is it's, it's number of seven. It's, it's years. How do we know this? 490 years is the total. 77, 70 Shabuim. In the spring of 445 BC, Persian king Artaxerxes decreed that Nehemiah could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the ruined city. Which I believe kicked off the 77s. At that point, 445 B.C. Now the 70 Shabuim, the 77s are divided into three groups in the passage we just read. The first setting is seven sevens. Seven seven year time periods, which would be 49 years. So 49 years during which Jerusalem was rebuilt in distress. The period of time when Nehemiah went back and they began to rebuild and reconstruct and put the walls back up and and bring life back into the city. Then the second time period is 62 sevens. 62 sevens, just kind of track with me and you can go back and listen to this on the web if you're missing the numbers. 62 sevens, which would be 434 years, which is the time spanning Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem. It brings us up to a specific point in history. That totals altogether 69 sevens, which is 483. That brings us to the very week of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Perfectly. So Jesus comes riding in in that triumphus that we talked about a couple of weeks back. How do you know it's 77 year times periods? Because it fits. Because of what the prophecy says. Now pay close attention to the wording in verse 26. The wording is important. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Sometimes after this date, and that word is critical, after. In fact, there are three words, if you have your Bibles there, you might want to just circle. In verse 25 it says, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah... There will be, and then he gives that number of weeks, 483 years. From the issuing of that decree to the coming of Messiah, Jesus into Jerusalem, will be 483 years. Very, very specific. But the then he says, then after the 62 weeks. Okay? After the 62. So, so it's going to be at some point after this. Well, Rick, that could be any time in history. It could be, except that we're told after that, Messiah would be cut off. The word cut off there is karat. In the Hebrew, and it means to kill. Messiah will be killed after this time period. And then, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The next time after this prophecy was given, the next time the city and the sanctuary were destroyed was A.D. 70 when Rome destroyed. Which tells us that according to this prophecy, Messiah had to come at some point after the 62 weeks and before... The city was destroyed. And the only person alive at the time who could fit that is Jesus Christ. It's a very, very specific prophecy to Jerusalem. One thing we know for sure is the date of the destruction of Israel, of Jerusalem, and of the temple there by Rome. Amazing. Nobody fills these shoes but Jesus and Jesus alone. Why do you believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? God has made it plain. He's shown us in His Word. And Jesus then, going back now to Matthew, you might keep your finger in Daniel or I'll just read you another verse in a moment, but He affirms then the promised desolation of Daniel. Daniel said the city is going to be desolate. It's going to be wiped out by the people of the prince who is to come. Who's that? Well, it's Rome who did it. So we know the prince who is to come is connected in some way with Rome. That's another study for another time. I say that a lot, don't I? Because there's so much here, you know? But Jesus affirms this desolation of Daniel when He says, Jerusalem, your house is being left to you desolate. The choice of the word is very specific there. What's about to happen is exactly what Daniel told you was going to happen. Because you're going to cut off Mashiach. You are going to kill Messiah. And because of that choice and that rejection, the city, Jerusalem, the apple of the Father's eye, the place where He said His name, is going to be raised to the ground. And by the way, when, when Titus and the Romans annihilated Jerusalem, word reached the ears of those in Damascus. And that same day, 10,000 Jewish people who were living there were brought out into the center of the city and their roads were slit. And the desolations, as I shared last week and many times before, the desolations of the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, have been constant ever since. One after another after another. And yet, miraculously... Through all this history of the Jewish people, against all human odds, they have survived as a people group, as a nation. That comes up to four hundred and eighty-three years. But if it was seventy-sevens, aren't we short sure seven years? Four hundred and ninety years. Listen, after the first sixty-nine years of desolation for Jerusalem, Daniel speaks then of another desolation. Daniel actually prophesies two. Two desolations the one in A.D. 70, and a 70th Shavuim, the 70th week, a worse desolation, and its end will come with a flood, and even to the end there will be war. Desolations, plural, are determined. Desolations are determined for this city, Jerusalem. So Jesus affirms this last desolation in Matthew 24, and we'll take a peek ahead here, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, he says, now, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then in parentheses Matthew adds, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will be not in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He's talking about a future desolation. Okay, Rick, well that's where we part company because I think that that's talking about A.D. seventy. I think you're wrong. Well, I think you're wrong. And I can explain why. What makes me think that this is a future desolation and not a past one, not what happened when Rome tore apart the city? Why do I think this is something yet to come? I'll tell you next week. With all these desolations, with all these desolations, no wonder Jesus cried, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. By the way, it's it's interesting to note that every time Jesus speaks a proper name twice in Scripture, His heart is overflowing with compassion. Jesus said in Luke chapter ten verse forty one, "Martha, Martha, you're so worried and bothered about so many things." Jesus said in Luke twenty two thirty one, "Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you." So that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have once turned, once again turned, strengthen your brothers. Or Acts chapter 9 Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in rejecting me, you are bringing desolation on your own house, and it's not what the Father wanted. Please hear this. Please hear this people in rebellion today, rebellion against the Lord, rebellion against Jesus, would say, why does He allow this? And I'll tell you, it is not what the Father wanted. It's not what He wanted for you. It's not what He desired for your life. The pain, the sorrow, the emotional distress, that is not the Father's intent. He did not want Jerusalem to be ripped apart. It's not that gleefully the Lord went, oh, this is going to be a good one. Watch this time as I tear the city to shreds now his heart broke as he said Jerusalem Jerusalem what did the father want same thing a mother hen wants same thing Jesus says how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling what, what's up with the mother hen comment hens are notably protective of their little chicks they're, they're very caregiving. They protect literally at all costs. More than one time, this has been reported a case that a fire breaking out in, in a barnyard or in a, a chicken coop that a farmer would then walk among the ashes and among the debris and the charred rubble and would come across a smoldering black and meaty lump and kick it over only to find live chicks scurrying out from underneath. In the reality that the hen would rather gather the chicks under her wing and protect them, even if it means burning to death herself. Is there a better picture of Jesus on the cross? I would rather die than have you die. I would rather go to the cross than have you go to the cross understand that before Jerusalem's desolation of A.D. 70 came Jesus' desolation of A.D. 33. Before Jerusalem went through it, Jesus went through it. Before Jerusalem was destroyed, the life of Jesus was poured out of His body in blood. Before the city was burned and decimated, Jesus went to the fiery altar of sacrifice there on Mount Moriah to a place called Golgotha, Skull Hill, Calvary. And so when people reject Jesus today Saying I don't like the one way to God Exclusivity of Christianity They fail to realize The price has already been paid in full For their redemption The bridge already built Before we had any say in the matter God said I will make a way That's the thing I share this on Wednesday It blows me away People say I don't like that there's only one way How about saying praise God There's a way He made a way and as, as Quentin shared during communion, a way we didn't deserve. We didn't work on that bridge. Someone else did that. I get to drive across the Deception Pass Bridge every day because someone else did that. It had nothing to do with me, but it's there. And how foolish would it be of me to rail against that? I'm getting a boat, man. And I'm going to navigate Deception Pass, and I'm getting across there my way. A way was made. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus didn't wait for mankind's acceptance before taking on the weight of mankind's rejection. He went first. Which leads us to the last thing Jesus spoke to the crowds. For with the same breath in which He talks about Jerusalem's historic rebellion and horrific desolations, He offers a hopeful declaration. Verse 39, For I say to you, from now on you will not see Me until you say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. It's that great statement from Psalm 118, the Triumphus. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. The people had just cried it out a couple of days earlier. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey's colt. But Jesus doesn't say, you will not see me again unless you say, blessed is he who comes. He says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It will happen. Jerusalem will cry out. The people gathered there will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Faith in Mashiach will come to the Jewish people. I've got to share this with you. Romans chapter 11 and verse 25 where Paul writes, I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery. This verse is the reason why we're talking about Jerusalem again this morning. There are only a handful of things, three or four things that Paul ever said. I don't want you to be misinformed. I don't want you to misunderstand. Don't miss this. Hang on. Listen. Pay attention. Get this. Two of the four things have to do with Israel. This is one of them. I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is My covenant with them. By the way, the word cut, karat, in Daniel chapter 9, the Messiah will be cut off, karat, killed, is also the word for covenant. That's why we say they cut covenants. That's why a covenant was made that way. They would cut an animal And walk through the pieces in covenant together. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God is not through with Israel. They rejected Him. And were left with a desolate house. Even now, even now the country of Israel is divided. I read a fascinating news piece just this last week about the secular Jews' view of Christianity and the religious Jews' view of Christianity. The country is divided between secular Jews who live there as a national homeland and they will fight to the death to protect it for their right to live and then the religious Jews who see more of a connection with God to that land which is why they would fight to the death to live there. But two very different places. Interesting that right now secular Jews they're pretty much ambivalent toward Christ and Christianity not feeling one way or the other, not really threatened by Christians anymore. Not really accepting. You know, it's kind of, okay, that's cool. They're there. They don't have a problem with Christians coming to the land and seeing all the historic things. They don't have a problem with the money that comes in through tourism, you know. They don't they don't have any issue with people talking about Jesus. It doesn't bother them if you use Jesus' name in front of them. Religious Jews are still very Hard against Jesus and all Christians. To the point that they don't even want to accept charitable money given through Christian organizations for Israel. They don't want to have anything to do with that. It's a very divided country right now. Two extremes. A religious extreme that is still stiff-necked and rebellious against the very God they worship. And a secular doesn't really even believe in the God that those Hasidic weirdos worship. That's Israel today. But God has not given up. Don't you either. The last sentence of Jesus' public address left that hopeful declaration. Luke 21, verse 24 tells us that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until all the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Paul said that in Romans eleven twenty-five. in that section we just read. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, what exactly does that mean? I'll give you my opinion. And chalk this up as Rick's opinion. It's not gospel truth, it's just what I think. June seventh, nineteen sixty-seven. Jewish paratroopers stormed into and secured Jerusalem under Israeli authority for the first time in eighteen hundred and ninety-three years. Now they lost fifty percent of the battalions that that, that paratrooped in. 50% of them died that day. But they, for the first time... Well, they had Israel in 1948 declaring their independence, but for the first time, Jerusalem was under Jewish authority again. Yishtak Rabin arrived there on the Temple Mount along with with the uh, the famous one-eyed general, Moshe Dayan. And there was a, a rabbi there... Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, who blew the shofar for the first time again in 1893 years, there in Jerusalem, signifying the return of Jewish sovereignty over Jerusalem. What are you saying? Simply this I think that day marked the end of the times of the Gentiles. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles is over. Now, I could be wrong if I'm right about this, you might wonder, well, Rick, then why are we still here? Did we miss the rapture? Did it happen in 1968 and we just were all partying and didn't see it? You know, what what happened there? Why hasn't the church been raptured if the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled at the close of that as as the Jewish people came back in? Why are we here? Why hasn't Jesus come? Patience. 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 Patience is the reason Jesus hasn't come. Second Peter three nine. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Let me ask you a question: How many of you here this morning gave your life to Jesus before nineteen sixty seven? How many of you gave your life to Jesus after June seventh, nineteen sixty seven? Had Jesus come that day, we would have been lost. Or never existed in some cases I was three years old what hope would I have you know well, as a child maybe more hope than some of you but the reality gang is aren't you glad he waited aren't you thankful for his patience if you ever get frustrated wishing that Lord why didn't you come today I'm tired of all this I just want to go now remember that he waited long enough for you to be saved And every breath we take, every moment we have is the Lord's patient waiting for someone else to get saved as well. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 2 Peter 3.10 The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Meaning there are people who will be caught off guard. Not ready. The church, believers in Jesus Christ, will be suddenly taken away. After which Jerusalem will experience a desolation called the Abomination of Desolation. Like the desolation of all desolations. The worst it has ever experienced. Worse than any time in its entire history. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Like a hen, the Lord desires to gather, protect, shield, and love His people. His children, His church, you, personally. The Lord would gather under His wings. And it's my hope that the Lord not have to say Your name twice. Oh, Jesus, that we would respond to the sound of Your voice upon hearing our name spoken once. That we would be so in tune with You. That we would immediately respond to You when You call us to some task or to some action or to someone. Oh, Lord we pray that You would turn the hearts of people in rebellion. Lord Jesus, not just those who are hard, fast in their rebellion, angry and forcing, pushing their way. But Father, I pray especially for those who are tender-hearted in their rebellion, not even recognizing it as rebellion, just confused, not willing to go the way, the one way through Jesus that You have proclaimed. Lord, would You make us softeners in the lives of people to soften rebellion, soften hearts through the way we love so that Your patience will not be in vain. And Lord, this morning, we just ask You to be a ascending God in our hearts and our lives for those who have not yet accepted You as Lord and Savior. I pray today would be that day. In Jesus' name, amen.